you have a Bible, I would love for you to find a place both in Numbers chapter 13 and Joshua chapter 2. Numbers 13, not too far um, apart from Joshua. Um, These two chapters are um, sort of mirror images of each other. We'll figure that out as we begin to study them um, in just a little bit. But um, Numbers chapter 13 and Joshua 2, we'll be looking at Joshua later on. Um, We'll begin in Numbers uh, in just a few minutes. Uh, The title of the message today is uh, something that we kind of talked about in in very uh, brief um, conversation last week, um, the almost generation. Uh, When you hear the word generation, maybe a couple different things come to your mind, maybe a period of time, uh, maybe a certain era defined by, marked by an event, ongoing circumstances. Uh, You know, we as a people, as a society and in history as a medium, uh, loves to use the phrase generation to slice up the stories of our country and our world. Uh, If if you Google, um, you know, generations of Americans, you'll find a a nice kind of segmented uh, little timeline that that helps you kind of break down, you know, this one from that one. Uh, But really the phrase generation is less about the period of time and more about a group of people. Uh, We often talk about generations as if if we're referring to a what, but really the word refers to a who and brings to mind a who. The word generation is defined as all the people born and living at the same time, easy enough, but it's specific about a group of people that share that certain uh, proximity and and, and, uh, place. Now, the reason historians and sociologists and those that study humanity are prone to group people into generational categories is because trends suggest and show that people of similar ages, similar demographics tend to move in a similar direction. And that makes enough sense, right? People of similar ages, similar demographics, similar place and time usually move in similar direction. There's trends, and and of course, there's not always 100% accuracy there, but 80-90% trends seem to suggest that people of similar ages, demographics, tend to move in a similar direction and make similar choices. Whether there's something in the air, you know, a zeitgeist, if you will, or, uh, or there are just a few leaders and many followers, it's hard to ignore that people of a shared time and place are often connected by the choices they make. That people of a certain age bracket that have that in similarity, have that in common, of a time and place, usually are connected by choices that they make. Now in our day and time, we have all sort of collectively accepted and sliced different groups of people and and, and people that are alive today and people that have preceded us um, into certain generational categories. We have broken them down uh, over the last 120 years. You know, historians have kind of labeled uh, those that were born in every so many decades um, as a part of a certain generation. Um, You've heard of the greatest generation, those that uh, helped really shape modern America, those that we credit with bringing us through the Great Depression and through World War II and really kind of forming what we understand is the modern Western world. Um, a lot of, uh, there's a lot that is attributed to that generation and, and they're called great uh, for good reason. Uh, you've heard of the baby boomers, Generation X. You've heard of millennials because everyone blames millennials for all the problems in the world. And um, I'm fortunate enough to be part of that category. Um, and, and, and there's some even younger ones that coming along. I think there's probably two more now, um, Gen Z and, and some more uh, that uh, are being categorized and studied. And, you know, because of the shared time and place and choices that we all seem to make, um, people kind of get put in these categories. Now, these all define people based on decades they were born in, based on big events that took place that helped shape 
and define them. You know, for my generation, those that were born um, in the 90s, you know, 9-11 is that event that really helped shape and, you know, our worldview and kind of really happened at a, at a crucial time in our, in our childhood. Um, again, 20 years ago, I can't believe that it's uh, been that long, but that is that event in our lives. And for many, you know, the Kennedy assassination was that event. For before that, it was, again, World War II and things like that. These big events that kind of happened in that period of time that really define, help shape a certain group of people. But the most noticeable and the most renowned thing about each generation is how they respond to the circumstances and the cards they are dealt. Some are dealt with easier ones than others, but regardless, what defines us and what really we're known for is how we respond to the things that we face. And, and some are remembered and celebrated for collectively accomplishing great things, while others are held jointly responsible for moving things in the wrong direction. We've all used phrases like that. It's because of that generation that we are in this mess or, because, or that we got out of that mess. And you've used those phrases before. Uh, and uh, we're familiar that generations uh, responding to certain things can either change things for the good or change things for the worse. And, and of course, there are outliers and there are exceptions within every generation. Not everyone uh, goes in, you know, with the crowd, whether everyone makes a poor decision. Some choose an excellent path. When, when some or when most take the right path, there are those that choose the wrong path. That's just how it is. Today, though, we're going to talk about two different generations that are completely opposite of each other in practically every way. But they just so happen to take place back to back. And basically their stories are inseparable. Uh, you can't talk about one without the other. One literally leads up to the other. In these back-to-back -back generations, one is marked by miserable failure, missed opportunity, and misplaced trust. And as bad as that sounds, and it's all of these things that set the table for the generation that came after them to take things in a brand new and better direction. So again, one generation, miserable failure, missed opportunity, misplaced trust. But the one that came after that is remembered for their mighty faith, maximized opportunities and miraculous victories. So how could it be so, how could one be so off and one be so on? Their stories are connected and of course one would lead to the other. And, and, and if you were with us last week, you know that we're studying the book of Joshua. The book of Joshua, we, we, we are calling it the book of victory because it's about this generation. It's about this generation with mighty faith, with miraculous victories being worked through them and for them. It's a testimony of God's intentions and his ability to redeem everything everyone, including you, everything and save anyone for his glory and for your and for our good. It's a record of how God can bring victory to his people and has a promised land he wants to lead us into, a promised life he wants us all to experience. That's not defined by material things, but by his spiritual presence in and through our lives. Joshua's theme of victory is really only so strong, however, because it comes off of the back of a generation that had known so much failure and loss. The condition, the morale of the people of God at the beginning of the story is why the victory theme of Joshua rings so loud and clear. Because the story begins uh, as another comes to an end, one that was a failure, unbelief, a generation that was known as the almost generation. 
Last week, we studied Joshua 1, where God speaks to a nation of Israel that was running on empty, drained, defeated, discouraged, because their predecessors had uh, really not left them much to have hope in and to look forward to. The narration in Joshua 1 sounds as if God's interrupting a silence uh, where everyone is really down and really gloomy and really without hope about what's to come. God breaks this silence and he interrupts a situation where everyone has accepted that the situation they were in, the condition they were in was irreversible, it was irredeemable. The children of Israel had spent 40 years, literally 40 years going in circles in the desert. Not because they did not know which way to go, but because 40 years prior, they had decided that they would not go the way God told them to and had prepared them to and had equipped them for. 40 years prior, they chose to not follow God's plan. And all those years later, they left their their following generation at a place of dismay, a place of hopelessness, a place of very low confidence. Now, of course, they didn't do this defiantly or haphazardly. They got themselves in the situation by using what they thought was good judgment, sound reasoning. But alas, ultimately, they chose to second guess God's plan and God's promise. And 40 years later, Joshua begins with God calling for change, declaring a new day had dawned, coaching the people of God to step up and follow this new opportunity. Last time we camped out around Joshua 1 verse 2, where God says to Joshua, now arise and go into the promised land. So he instills this sense of confidence and a spirit of victory, a sense of urgency. Now arise, go, it's time. Today is the day of salvation. And he gives Joshua a promise that redeeming power is on their side, taking what was marked by fear and weakness and giving them courage and strength. We hear Joshua, uh, we hear God give Joshua the same pep talk three times, if you remember in Joshua 1, verse 6, verse 7, and verse 9. He says that, that, that famous uh, uh, you know, word of confidence, be strong and courageous, be not afraid, neither be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you and goes with you wherever you go. He repeats that one, two, three times. Now, if anything's repeated in the whole Bible three times, that's a big deal. But if something's repeated three times in the span of four verses, I'd say that's a very big deal, don't you? Today, we're going to look back before we move forward to understand how Israel got to this place where they needed this reminder. They needed this understanding that God was with them and that they could accomplish great things for him and that his victorious power was at their availability. Today, again, we're looking back before we move forward to understand what had taken place over those previous 40 years and served to define that generation. By looking back, we'll understand why Joshua and his fledgling generation were so downcast and so helpless, why God began to speak to him in this way, indicative of the redemption he was trying to work, the victory he was trying to give them. Through Joshua, God sought to redeem a generation, save a generation from repeating the same mistakes of its predecessor. Through Joshua, God would redefine a generation destined to repeat and relive the same failures. Through Joshua, God would rescue a generation, provide victory to a people that had lived in defeat for too long. Now, 
about that previous generation, under Moses' leadership, they should have been remembered for witnessing miracles, signs, and wonders for 40 years before. We know the story of Exodus. We know the miracles of the Red Sea, the miracles of manna and quail. We know how they saw the glory of God at Sinai. We know how they received his revelation. Yet the scene at the beginning of Joshua is not one of a torch being passed from a victorious generation to another, but it's a shadow of a generation defined by none of those things that we just mentioned. If that generation had remained in that identity that they began with, the one to come would have been chomping at the bit come Joshua 1. So enough suspense and speculation. What happened to that generation? How did they fail so badly? And, and, and weren't they the same generation that came out of Egypt with God bringing them a, a, a victory against Pharaoh with the plagues? Weren't they the people that crossed the Red Sea? Weren't they the people that ascended the mountain in glory and saw and felt and experienced things that no one had ever seen before or ever would again? Weren't they those same people that ate manna from heaven every morning and that ate quail that was brought in out of, out, of, out of season? Weren't they the same people that saw miracle after miracle after miracle after miracle? So why aren't they remembered as those people for those things? Well, to get, well, to, get to the bottom of this, we've got to break down the events from Exodus to Joshua. It's going to lead us to Numbers 13. So I want to throw some dates at you. Um, because this is going to help us understand what's going on at this point in the Bible. The important dates to know are March 1446 BC, and you'll know in the Old Testament time counts down because it gets to zero, right? So 1446 took place before 1445. I know that's weird, but that's how it worked. March 1446 BC through September 1445 BC. And then another day is the spring, probably March, maybe April of 1406 BC. Now, you'll notice there's an 18-month gap at the first, in the first part. And then there's a 40-year gap. That's not an error. A 40-year gap between the two. Now, around 1446 BC, March, spring of the year, that's believed to be the first Passover when the blood was put on the doorpost and God let the children of Israel out of bondage from Egypt and God judged Egypt for the final time and they crossed the Red Sea. Around March 1446 is when that first Passover took place. They spent three months traveling to Mount Sinai down through the Sinai Peninsula where God would reveal himself to Moses. They gave them the law, the sacrificial system and helped lay the foundation for the nation of Israel. So that summer of 1446 BC, um, they would receive the law. They would begin building the tabernacle that would be their portable house of worship that they would take through the desert with them and eventually set up in Israel. They would learn about sin, how God provided sacrifices for them until that greater day would come. So for a year, so from summer 1446 to summer 1445, so from like July to July, they camped out at the base of Mount Sinai. And that following summer, at the end of the summer, they set out for the promised land. They were only about two weeks away, which is remarkable. So they camped, they set out at the end of the summer, 1445, and they arrived at Kadesh Barnea, Kadesh, a, the, one of the southernmost cities in Canaan, Israel. They arrived at Kadesh in September of 1445. What, what, what happened and why did it take them 40 years to get in? We'll get there. 
So after just 18 months since leaving Egypt, they arrived at their destiny with God's saving hand on them and promised victory right in front of them. And this leads us to Numbers 13 where the generational drift begins. A slide so damaging, it would go on to define them. Worse than even, it would go on to dominate them. Of course, it didn't have to go this way. But since it did, we best learn why. Numbers 13, verse 1 through 3. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Send men to spy out the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the children of Israel. Not I might give, but I am giving. From each tribe of their fathers, you shall send a man, everyone a leader among them. So this makes sense. 12 tribes, 12 spies. Verse 3. So Moses sent them from the wilderness of Paran, according to the command of the Lord, all of them were who were the heads of the children of Israel. So they were, just, they were camped out about a couple of days away from where they would cross the Jordan and enter the promised land as we eventually read about in Joshua. They're camped out a few days away. So they're in this camp. They send out these spies to go and see which is the best route we should take in this conquest. Now, verse four through 15 is a list of the names of the men who are uh, appointed to be the spies for this mission. But verse 16 is where I want to skip down to. These are the names of the men who Moses sent to spy out the land. One of those men was named Hosea, mentioned back in verse number 8. And verse 16 tells us that Moses called Hosea, the son of Nun, of the tribe of Ephraim, Moses called him Joshua, which is, of course, who we know, how we know Joshua. It, it was in that list, Hosea, his name means salvation in Hebrew. Hosea means salvation or it means victory. Moses must detect or know something different that's different about this one. He begins to call him by a variation of that name. He takes the prefix Yah and adds it to Hosea's name. Now, Yah is, the, is part of the name for God, Jehovah, Yahweh. Moses took the name for God and mashed it with Hosea. He took the name for God and the word for salvation and put it together. And he renames Hosea, Yah Hosea, or because it's hard for us to talk in Hebrew for English speakers, Joshua, because we take Ys and make them Js. He calls Hosea, yeah, Hosea, Joshua, because he wants Joshua to know your name may mean victory, but the only way you're going to get victory is if you trust in the Lord. The Lord is salvation is what Joshua means. Salvation belongs to the Lord. So maybe Moses was using this as an opportunity to prep this group for this mission. He picks the one whose name means victory and he tweaks it. He reminds them that unless they rely on the Lord, they will not see victory. All right, boys. Y'all are strong, 12 able men. God is giving us this land. I'm not sending y'all to spy out to see if we can take it. I'm, seeing y'all to, I'm sending y'all so y'all can spy out how we're going to take it. God's already given us this as an inheritance. 
Hosea, come up here, buddy. You're the leader. Your name is now Joshua. Your name reminds every one of you that the Lord is your salvation. The Lord is your victory. By relying on him, we will see victory. But if we don't, this will not end well. Now, clearly this impacted Hosea because he would go by Joshua from then on. He becomes fast friends with one of the other spies named Caleb. And those two lead the entourage into the promised land. Moses wishes them good luck. Down in verse 20, they take off and they come back in verse 20. Or he told them, bring some fruit when you come back because it was the time of ripe grapes. So verse 21 is their report. So they went up and spied out the land from the wilderness of Zin as far as Rehob near the entrance of Hamath. And they went through the south and came to Hebron, Ahimon, Shashai, and Talmai. The descendants of Anak were there. Now Hebron was built seven years before Zon in Egypt. So that's just historical information that lets you know this was a real, a real story that was recorded all those years ago. Then they came to the valley of Eschol and there cut down a branch with one cluster of grapes. They carried it between two of them on a pole because they were so big. They also brought some of the pomegranates and figs. The place was called the valley of Eschol because of the cluster which the men of Israel cut down. They returned from spying out the land after 40 days. So they looked it up and down one way or the other. They wanted to make sure they knew every route that they could take and where they needed to, to be prepared to fight battles. Verse 26, they departed and came back to Moses and Aaron and all the congregation of Israel in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh. They brought back word to them and to all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. And they told them and said, we went up to the land where you sent us. It truly flows with milk and honey and this is its fruit. It's everything we've ever dreamed of and more. It's what we've prayed for, waited for, spent 18 months preparing and pursuing for. This is why God rescued us, to delight in us and give us this land in which to make him known. This is where everything has been leading us to. They were so close. They had everything they needed. The Lord had been their victory and he would be once more. But, and I don't think they had a, I don't think that they expected this. I don't think Joshua and Caleb expected this to happen. I think it was kind of a group conversation. All of them were saying, wow, you should see the fruit and you should see the, all the resources. And you should see the mountains and the rivers. You should just see this land of milk and honey. You should just dream of it. You've dreamed of it. This is really right in front of us. And somebody from the group speaks up in verse 28, nevertheless, the people who dwell in the land are strong and the cities are fortified and very large. It's kind of weak, isn't it? Oh, they're strong people and their, their cities are big. Of course they're big. Their cities are big. They're fortified. Moreover, we saw the descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites dwell in the land in the south. The Hittites, the Jebusites, the Amorites dwell in the mountains. And the Canaanites dwell by the sea and along the banks of the Jordan. And Caleb's saying, guys, we, we talked about this. We, we know we don't have to worry about those guys. We don't got to worry about the, Am the Amalekites and the Hittites or the termites. We've got this. Y'all get that later. Caleb quiets them before Moses and said, let us go up at once and take possession for we 
are well able to overcome it. But the men who'd gone up with him, we are not able to go up against the people for they are stronger than we. They're more, they're more powerful than us. They're richer than us. They're X, Y, and Z more than us. And they gave the children of Israel bad report of the land which they had spied out. The land through which we have gone as spies is a land that devours its inhabitants. And all the people whom we saw in it are men of great stature. There we saw giants. The descendants of Anak came from the giants. And we were like grasshoppers in our own sight. And so we were in their sight. This leads to an uproar, much confusion. The dissenting voices soon spread across the entire population. They begin murmuring, bickering, crying out against Moses and against God. Chapter 14, the story continues. So all the congregation lifted up their voice and cried. The people wept that night, and all the children of Israel complained against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, If only we had died in the land of Egypt, or if only we had died in the wilderness. Why has the Lord brought us up to this land to fall by the sword, that our wives and children should become victims? Would it not have been better for us to return to Egypt? They've given up. And they begin to see God as some trickster. Why did he bring us here if this isn't going to be real for us? So they said to one another, let us select a leader and return to Egypt. And Moses and Aaron fell on their faces before the assembly of the congregation of the children of Israel. But Joshua, the son of Nun, and Caleb, the son of um, Jephunneh, who were among those who spied out the land, tore their clothes. They spoke to all the congregation of the children of Israel, saying, the land we pass through to spy out is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord delights in us, then he will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land flowing with milk and honey. Do not rebel against the Lord. Do not fear the people of the land, for they are our bread. Their protection has departed from them. The Lord is with us. Do not fear them. And all the congregation said to, this, said to stone them with stones. But the glory of the Lord appeared at the tabernacle of the meeting before the children and protected Moses, Aaron, Joshua, and Caleb. Isn't that, isn't that just remarkable how that story went down? It sounds like one of our stories, doesn't it? We get so close to where we have dreamed about and what we've dreamed for and prayed for and then something rears its head and we begin to lose faith. Verse 8 and 9 showed that Joshua and Caleb had put their faith in God and they were not about to miss out on this or they weren't going to give up the chance at this. They put their faith in a good God, more importantly. It's an important distinction to make because God wants our trust. And no matter his character, he would be owed it. But the Bible makes every effort to show us that God's heart is good. That God's character should be without question. God wants us to know he is a good God. He is, he is the moral standard by which all else is measured. The Bible makes it clear that above all else, we can trust that God is good and that God has a plan and that God is not tricking us or God is not pulling one over on us. God is not lying to us. He's not trapping us. But God is a good God as in, I don't know what your thoughts about God are. Sometimes we can be misconstrued and see him as, as, as something it should not be. We see, him, we see serving him as something less than joyful, something less than peaceful. God wants us to understand and God wants our relationship with us to, to be based on his goodness. I don't want to miss this. One of the oldest worship songs in our faith, dating back to the times of David, is Psalm 106. 
It's all over the Bible. Give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. So what was known about God and what did they sing about and what did they want to make sure people knew about God? God is good. The Bible stresses God's goodness. Psalm 23, verse six. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life and I will dwell in the house or the presence of God forever. They want you to know, David wants us to know, the Bible wants you to know that God is a good God. His goodness pursues you. And I'll explain why I'm making a big deal about this in a minute. James chapter one says, Don't be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of light, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. So here's why this is important. We must perceive our world through this constant lens, lest the world deceive us, lest we faint for fear and dismay when things appear to be something different. God is a good God. The reason this is stressed and repeated is because this fallen world will try to convince you otherwise. Back in verse 3, the people, the children of Israel wondered if God was just toying with them. Did he just bring us here knowing good and well that we couldn't do this? Did he just pump us up and then he's going to just abandon us? Is that the kind of God we serve? No, it's not. There will be dark seasons in your life where where you will question whether or not God is good, though. Let me make it very clear. You will question that. God is not that kind of God. We can rest assured that he is not and never will be. He is good and his goodness pursues us. And as Christians, we have an even greater perspective. Because behind us is the cross of Jesus, the ultimate proof of God's kindness and purity and generosity and graciousness. Romans 5.8 says that God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners and still sinning, Christ died for us. Now, our minds will cause us to question this. Our hearts will tempt to betray us of this assurance and replace this confidence with suspicious or skepticism. And let me be clear. This doesn't mean that bad things won't happen to God's people because the worst thing happened to God's son right? By all means, this doesn't mean that all things go our way, but it does mean that God's way is always good, always better, a pathway of salvation for us. Even if the pathway features pain, there's purpose in it. The end result is something good for me and glorifying to God. A verse that we all know and quote, Jeremiah 29, 11. I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for peace, not of evil, plans to give you a future and a hope. He wrote that to his people when he put them in time out for 70 years. They were in bondage for 70 years because of how much they had disobeyed him. Yet he promised them, I know you're mad at me. I know you don't think this is good for you, but I'm planning something big out of this mess that you've gotten yourself in. Let me ask you, do you believe that? That God is good? You can trust him? Sometimes we believe it, but we don't trust it. If we are ever, if we never trust God, if we don't believe he is a good God, we will never face our giants. Do you hear me? If you doubt that God is a good God in whom you can trust, you will never face your giants. You'll always render them more authority than you do God. You'll dance around them. You'll turn away from them. You'll let them dominate you. 
We've got to remember that God is good, that his Jesus' work on the cross punctuates this and confirms that God is a God of redemption and his favorite kind of victories are comeback stories. It's in the shadow of our fears and failures and losses that we will see just how good God really is. And this is hard to trust sometimes. This is hard for people to to, to wrap their arms around. I get it. Maybe you just lost somebody that you love dearly. And you can't imagine how something good's going to come out of that. Well, first and foremost, if they knew Jesus, then they are in heaven. Then their life hasn't ended. It's just beginning. And your, your hope in eternal life gives you a reason to live every day for the glory of God until you get there with them one day. Maybe you lost something or you had something taken from you that you thought you really needed. There's something better awaiting you. Consider that loss, a sacrifice in the fire, an advance against something better. Maybe you're suffering, struggling. The Bible teaches that our sufferings are a way to get closer to Jesus because his defining moment was a cross. If we suffer like him, we'll experience more resurrection from him. You see, there are times when we will be about to take the next step in our faith and we'll come to a place where God wants us to be. We'll come to a place where we have dreamed of being. Whether we anticipate it or not, there will be a glaring obstacle in our way. Do you hear me? There are times when you are about to take that next step and you have dreamed of it, you've prayed for it, you've prepared for it, and all of a sudden, a tragedy strikes. A trouble comes your way. Trials begin. Temptation distracts you. And in that moment, you've got to make a crucial decision. Will you be like the 10 who nobody remembers? Or will you be like the two who, of course, would have loved to have had no challenge, but they knew this was a part of God's plan. They knew he was good and they could trust him, even if it was hard. So when we take that next step and when, not if, when we encounter an obstacle, because you will, will we be like the 10 or the two? Today, we may live in a generation that has drifted away from God and where God wants us to be, but we can be the outliers like Caleb and Joshua. I believe that. We don't have to be like those 10. We can be like the two. We don't have to be like the 10 and those that followed them who allowed their potential enemies to become bigger than their proven God. You see, that's where they messed up. They allowed their potential enemies to become bigger than their proven God. Their fear, get this is big, their fear of a challenger became bigger than their faith in the Savior. Doesn't that land with all of us? Our fear of a challenger gets bigger than our faith in a savior. How often do we repeat that same error? I mean, I'll be honest and raise my hand. I'll raise my hand twice, three times for everybody. How often do we go down that same path? And here's what happened. Here's the risk. When we render more power to the enemy than we do God, when we exalt the challenge above the savior, we establish a generational precedent. I think the church in our time isn't loud enough. We're not bold enough. We're not confident enough in God's plan and his promise of victory. Let's be honest. We have stood down. We have sat down as the people of God. We've lost faith in his ability to use us. 
Rather than comparing the size of the challenge to the size of our Savior, we compare it to ourselves. And let me be honest with you. The challenge is always bigger than you. You're weak. I'm weak. I'm fearful. I'm, I'm fragile. The challenge always intimidates me. I always feel like a grasshopper in its sight because we're small. I'm not trying to insult you, but we're small. We're little. We're weak. That's why more often than not, we don't feel like serving God when we face trials or temptations because our flesh is weak and fearful. We have too many vices. We have too many intimidating voices threatening us inside and out. And if we, the people of God, continue to waver on this, our generation will be no different than the ones before us. Because of their obstinate and doubting hearts, they refused to accept the conquest was even possible for them. They didn't pray about it. They didn't didn't come back to it. They didn't meet about it. They just said, not going to happen. They shut the door on the open door of God's goodness and victory just because it looked like it would be too hard. And before we talk too bad about them, isn't this me and you? Well, that looks like it's going to require too much work. I don't know if I can do that. I don't know if that's going to be something I can handle or I can get through. How many of us are right there? A lot of us, come on, we've been there for a long time. Maybe not 40 years, but it could be a little while. They wandered in the desert facing problems they could have avoided, stress they could have been relieved from. Nonetheless, God showed up every day for those 40 years as they walked in circles. Everybody took turns leading because they didn't trust Moses. They said, we're going to go this way, this way, that way. We'll try this. And they just made a mess for 40 years. Eventually, though, they all died. Not how you want a story to end, but it's how most of our stories will end. They all died, including Moses. The almost generation ended in 1405 B.C. And a new generation inherited the invitation. Would this invitation be a blessing to them or a burden on them? You know, I think sometimes we think serving the Lord is a burden because we just don't trust him enough. We don't think that he is a good God and we trouble ourselves with unnecessary burdens that God has promised he will work out and redeem. Joshua and Caleb are the only ones from that generation that survived the wilderness. They are in charge to lead the next group to be different than their predecessors. And that's what Joshua 1 is all about. God commands him, be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid. Do not be dismayed. I will be with you. He tells Joshua that his presence is enough to do all of that, to give him courage, to give him strength, to give him confidence, to stave off his fears, to seal those cracks that sometimes we feel like that we're cracking, we feel like we're losing our grip. He seals them off. He gives us what we cannot get in this world. 1 John 4 repeats that sentiment. Little children, you are from God. You have overcome them. He who is in you is greater than he who is in this world. Whatever sin you face, struggle you face, suffering you're enduring, he who is in you is greater than. So Joshua tells the nation within three days they're going to take the land. We're not going to waste any time. It's urgent. We're taking this in three days. Instead of sending 12 spies to look the land over, he sends two. Because they only needed two the last time, right? These two spies stop in at an inn at the entrance of the city of Jericho, ran by a woman named Rahab. Word travels quick that the city has been infiltrated, but why in the world was this walled, fortified city of giants afraid of two little Hebrews? 
They begin searching the town up and down, inside and out. And they come to Rahab's inn and she covers them up on on the roof and says, I haven't seen them because they were hidden. And then before they're about to leave, Rahab has a word for them. If you'll look at Joshua chapter 2 before we leave, I want you to listen to this word that Rahab gives these two spies. Joshua 2 verse number 8. The men are about to go to bed that night. She comes and says, hey, before y'all go down to sleep, I got something I got to tell you. Joshua 2, 8, before they lay down, she came up to the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you this land. What? I know that the Lord, your God, has given you this land, that the terror of you has fallen on us and that all the inhabitants of the land are faint-hearted because of you. Us? We're little Hebrew. We're nobodies. We're, we're scared to death. Y'all are afraid of us? Yeah, we're terrified. We have heard what the Lord God did when he dried up the water of the Red Sea, when he came out of Egypt, how he, what he did to the two kings of the Amorites on the other side of the Jordan, whom you utterly destroyed. As soon as we heard these things, our hearts melted. Neither did there remain any courage in any of us because of you. For, your, for the Lord your God, he is in heaven above and on earth beneath. Man, from the mouth of the enemy... The truth is told. Turns out they don't really need to survey the city too much. The city is already mentally defeated. Turns out all along, while Israel felt small in the sight of their enemies, their enemies knew how small they were in the presence of Israel's God. Do you hear that? That confession from Rahab is the confession of every enemy you face, whether it's something in your mind, something in your flesh, something in this world. That's the truth from the enemy's mouth. He is terrified of the power of our God. The spies returned to Joshua, verse 22. They departed the city, went to the mountain, and stayed there three days until the pursuers returned. The pursuers sought them all all along, but they did not find them. So the two men returned, descended from the mountain, and crossed over. And they came to Joshua, son of Nun, and told him all that had befallen them. And they said to Joshua, Truly the Lord has delivered all the land into our hands, for indeed all the inhabitants of the country are faint-hearted because of us. Can you believe it? That was true 40 years before. <laughs> Just took them a while to get there. This is our promise to claim the enemies we worry over melt because of us. Now, the emotions, the obstacles, all the weapons of the enemy, they melt because of us and our God. What do we get from this, church? It's more than a story of a generation missing the mark and another picking up their slack. It's a picture of where so many of us are and where we can be. Just like any generation, our era has a beginning and an end. What are we doing with the time we've been given to be a generation of victory? Ephesians says, look carefully how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of time because the days are evil and they grip us tightly, not wanting to lose us. Don't be foolish. Understand God's will. What are we doing with our time on this scene as the people of God on mission for God? 
God has a will for every one of you. He has plans for every one of you. Revealed in this book, his spirit wants to dwell in you and go before you and lead you and guide you and direct every step you take. He wants your life to matter for the kingdom of God. He's calling you to follow him, trust him, and obey him. And yes, there are many adversaries. There is opposition in your minds and externally in this world. There are giants that will scare us to death. What must we do is not to not waste the opportunity to make a generational difference. With every generation's opportunity to serve God, we will face our share of giants. They will tower over us. They will scare us. They will cause us to crack. But here's where we have to make a choice. Will our generation be defined by the giants we fear or the God we trust? Will we be defined by the giants that we fear, whether it's something to do with in your own life, something in your family, something in this country, something in the world. It could be something that you personally deal with or something that we all collectively deal with. Will we be defined by the giants we fear or the God we trust? We can make excuses. We can be justified in them. But if we're saved by God, we know that we are more capable. We must never render more power to our enemy than we do to God. We must never exalt the challenge above the Savior. I know their threats are great, but we must come to them with God's testimony. You say me quoting the Bible isn't going to change anything. Their lies and their lofty words change your countenance, don't they? What makes you think the truth in the inspired word of God can't reverse yours and disarm them? What did David say when he faced that famous or that infamous giant. You come to me with a sword, a spear, and a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. The day, this day, the Lord will deliver you into my hand that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel and that all this assembly may know the Lord saves not with a spear and not with a sword. What will our generation be remembered for, church? What will you be remembered for? Maybe you've backed away too many times and you wonder if there is another chance for you. There absolutely is. Your story did not end 40 years ago, 40 days ago, 40 hours ago. There is redemption. There is victory. The enemy is trembling at the sound of the name of our God. He does not want to lose you to victory. But you don't have to be defined by your past losses or a generational banner that's over you. You can rise above that. You can succeed despite that. Do you believe that? This isn't a call for you to face your fears in your own power. Remember, Joshua's name teaches us that salvation is of and only of the Lord. Maybe your victory begins with coming to God, asking him to save your life. Take what you've made a mess of and redeem it because he's looking forward to the opportunity to. He's willing. Are you willing? Maybe your victory begins by returning to God, coming back to him as the beginning of your comeback. All of our victories always begin with a daily recommitment to God as our strength and as our courage, as our salvation. All of our victories are possible, not with a sword or a spear or a javelin of this world, but with the Lord of hosts, the God of angel armies that's by our side. Psalm 24 says that 
The one will receive a blessing from the Lord and righteousness from God is his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of God. Can this be said of you? Is this the kind of generation we are? Is this the kind of person you are? May the people of God rise up. May this generation be remembered as one that never wavered in its confidence of God, no matter the giants we faced. We don't have to be an almost generation. Our God is with us. And today is always a day of salvation if we will put our faith in our God rather than fearing our giants. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this invitation to step up to this place that many back away from. Lord, everybody here today has backed away from this place in their own lives. There are sins they need to confront. There are losses that they've had that they need to confront. There are things in their families, in their lives they need to confront. There are callings over them that they backed away from. Every one of us have been on the precipice of where you want us to be. And some giant stared us down and said, you can't do this. You're not able to do this. You're not big enough. You're not strong enough. You're not good enough. You are not capable. And we believe that lie. We believe that lie. Of course, we are not able, but you are God. And you're the one that wants to work that victory through us and in us. And you have called us to step up to the plate and be not afraid and not be discouraged nor dismayed, but have confidence in the presence of our Lord and our Savior. Lord, there are people today that are facing great challenges, but Lord, may you remind them that they have a greater Savior. May we as a people collectively surrender to you, trust in our Savior and trust in our God because our giants, they are not greater than you. Our challenges, they are not greater than you. There is a better day ahead for all that trust in you. Maybe that day starts right now. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand as we sing more to come. The altar is open if God wants to, you want God to work in your life to give you victory over that giant that's been staring you down. There is a hope that you can cling to today. There is a help you can find today. His name is Jesus.